If you want a title for today's message, I've called it Together in Battle. John Calvin once said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. I think it's a wonderful way of putting what gathering around this word is. We don't just hear from it from a Sunday morning as if it's an old piece of history or poetry or anything like that. But when we gather around this word and we open it up as as a congregation, we, we owe to this the same reverence that we owe to God because we're going to be addressed by the Lord. And this morning is really a message that's been culminating in my heart since around October last year, which I'll explain about in a moment. It's part of our Together series. It's the one that I've probably been burdened with the most. So we're going to give ourselves to Ephesians 6, just three verses from verses 10 through to the end of verse 12. It's owed to this, the same reverence that we owe to God. It's the Apostle Paul speaking, and this is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, we do want to be addressed by you today. Lord, we want to hear you speak to our hearts, speak to our souls through your word. And Lord, would you do that? Lord, I have prepared for this moment. I'm ready for the battle. But Lord, the victory is always yours. So Lord, would you have your way in our midst this morning? Would you pierce our hearts? Would you open our blind eyes? Help us to prepare for the battle that we're all in. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our culture today, for both Christians and non-Christians alike, I think we often struggle to believe in the devil at all. People dismiss him as a joke. So a sort of Dante Inferno's type character, a short guy, red guy, horns, tails as a trident. And now and again, you see on Facebook or wherever else, people even go dressed as him to a party or something like that. He's a bit of a funny character, no big deal. Or maybe we dismiss him as a medieval concept. You might see him on a castle wall in England or France or something of that nature, but he's not real, right? He's just a concept. And yet in the Bible, all the way through the Bible, the devil is taught as totally real. There's over 50 references to him in both the Old Testament and the New and each and every time we are commended to help us realize this guy is, is real. In the Bible, then, we see the devil was an angel. He was created by God. He was put in charge of worship. There's a few big angels in the Bible. Michael is one of them. Gabriel is another. Satan is another. He was created by the Lord, created as an angel, created to be put in charge of worship, and yet Satan rebelled against all of that. He regaled against God. He wanted to be God. He wanted people to worship him like they did God. At that point, God removed him from his presence and Satan became the leader of what in effect is all evil. A leadership position that he uses to stand against God, that he uses to stand against God's plan and God's people, and a leadership position he fulfills with genuine power and evil and cunning. Whether we like it or not, As Christians, for me and you, Satan is at war with you. He hates you. For those of you that are married, he hates your family. For those of you with a family, he hates everything you stand for. As a part of this church, he hates what we stand for. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, it is easy for believers, especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected, to be complacent and become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and in a kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. 
Yet theirs is the victory and peace of the defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they're not engaged in the war. But God gives no deferments or exemptions. His people are at war and we will continue to be until Christ returns. My friends, we are at war with Satan and we will be until Christ returns. Satan in all his power, all his evil, all his cunning is warring against us. In all that he does, he's employing the weaponry he can to bring us down, to destroy us, to blind our eyes, to cast doubt over what we believe, to tempt us away from the Lord and one another, to accuse us, to devour us, to bring us down as individuals and as a local church. As Christians, he hates us. He hates you. But moreover, even than that, as a church, he hates us collectively as well. And I don't just refer to that in a theological sense. Oh, Dave knows the Bible, so he can help us see that Satan hates the church. Okay, great. I don't mean it just theologically, though. I mean it experientially as well. Satan hates you as a local church. See, last September, there was a few people that that came to me with the same thing, the same impression that they felt God was giving them, that God wanted us to pray against these present forces of darkness. Pray for protection on us as a local church. And as a pastor, particularly as the lead pastor, your ears prick up when you have three different individuals at different times throughout a month coming and saying exactly the same thing. That I feel Satan is trying to get us. That I feel there is evil demonic stuff against our local church. I've been a pastor for 16 years and I've never thought much about it at all. But when three things happen in the same month, you take notice. And Then I went to the United States last October. And while I was there, I didn't tell anybody about this, but whilst I was there in October... Um, I was with uh, the church in Arizona, and I met a guy on the Friday, and I was chatting away to him. Never met him before. His name's Jamie. Um, never met him before. Chatting away to him. I saw him then on the Saturday as well, because he owns a pizza shop, and it was a really nice pizza shop, so I thought I should go back in. So I went back in, and I'm chatting away to this Jamie again, who's the manager. And then I saw him on the Sunday morning, and he came to me at church on the Sunday morning. and said, Dave, there's something I want to tell you, and it sounds really weird, but I believe it's from the Lord for you. And he said... When I first met you on Friday, and then I met you again on Saturday, there was a word that came behind your head that I believe was from the Lord for you, and it's the word snakes. And I believe God wants you to know in your church there are snakes in the grass. And they're not people, but you feel the effect of them. You can see that things aren't quite right, that there are things that are going on in your church that you can't put your finger on, but God wants you to know he's aware of it, and he's got it. I finished that conversation like this. (laughs) It was full on. I'd heard all that stuff in September. I'd even said to Emma just before I went to the States, there's something just not right in our church. Can't put my finger on it, but it's not quite right. I go to the United States, a guy prophesies, there are snakes in your grass in your church, and God's aware of it, but he's on it. And I felt the Lord, even at that point last October, put on my heart this message for you today. See, I think there have been snakes in the grass. The reason for that is because Satan hates our church. God is aware of it, and God's on it. But part of the way I believe he's on it is he wants to make us aware. What are these schemes that we read here in chapter 6? What are these schemes that he employs to try and take churches down? What does he do to try and tempt us and rob us and blind us? See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul exhorts the Corinthian church, a church which he dearly loves, not to be outwitted by Satan. He exhorts them, do not be outwitted by Satan as a local church. And he goes on to say to them then, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Quite clearly, as he passes this church, he is making them aware of the devil's schemes. Don't be outwitted by him, because we're not unaware of his schemes. We know the way he operates, right? Well, this message has been born really out of that. In the same way that Paul pastored the Corinthian church, is your lead pastor, I, I want to pastor you. I want to care for you. I don't want us to be taken out by the devil's schemes as if we are unaware. I want us to be aware. 
of where I believe the Lord has put on my heart to encourage you as to how his schemes operate in our midst. What is he doing? Where are the snakes in the grass? How are they operating in our, in our local church? It's part of my responsibility to protect you, to help make you aware of things that maybe you're unaware of, but things that I pray about and meditate on and think about all the time as I think about the health of this local church. And I really felt the Lord at the back end of last year put three things on my heart that I believe are the devil's schemes against us as a church. Here's another wild story. This week I had an email from a guy in our church. He said that a group of people in this church had been praying, also felt that there was some evil stuff going on in our midst in some shape or form, and really felt that the Lord had put three things on them specifically about the way the devil's schemes are operating in our church. They're the same three things that I was going to be speaking about today. We hadn't talked in between. Three things. Here's the first. I want to make you aware of his schemes. Here's the first. Number one, the scheme of distraction. A scheme that can so easily pull us away from the race that we've been called to, that you've been called to, that I've been called to, that we've been called to as a local church. The scheme of distraction, and Satan loves to use it. See, the book of Hebrews really is an incredible book. In chapters 1 through verse 9, the author focuses on the personal work of Jesus Christ, and he paints a wonderful picture how Jesus is the great high priest, and he's above all and in all. He's the one who's worthy of all praise, and he's the one who would shed his own blood to redeem us to himself. And for nine chapters, you just see the glories of the gospel, the reality that you are dead in your transgressions and sins, that he was against you. But in grace, God has saved you, how he's forgiven you and redeemed you and adopted and and assured that heaven is going to be your home. And it's all through the perfect blood of the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. And then in chapter 10, from verse 19 onwards of the book of Hebrews, the author then makes a turn in the book and begins to expound on the implications of what Jesus has done for us. What does it now mean? In light of all that he has achieved in your place at Calvary, how does this now operate in our church? From chapter 10, verse 19, he uses the words us and we and our all the time to help us see our plurality. So verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see it? He's using plurality terms all the time. You were once aliens and strangers, but not anymore. Now together, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Let us do all these things. We're together now. He carries it on in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't it beautiful? You were once dead and you were once lost, but not anymore. Now we're together. We, we do life together in the context of church. And in chapter 12, he gives us one of the, things, one of the best things, I think, in all of Scripture. He, he opens our eyes to the great race, the great race that you're all on, the great race that we're all on as a local church. He says this in chapter, one, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love it. See, Christianity is not a fun run, okay? That's not the way it is. It's not a little, oh, let's just hop along together for Jesus. It's not just a family. It is a family, but it's not where the story ends. And it's not just a hospital. There are times when we need to help people and aid people. But primarily, the tone of Scripture is that we are all in a race. We're together, linked arm in arm, on the greatest race of our lives. 
When you became a Christian, you joined the race. You come in from the crowd, whether you like it or not, and he says, hey, let's start running. Let's start giving ourselves to this great race. And this writer of Hebrews just paints it so wonderfully and helpfully for us. It's a great race that we're all on as a local church that we run on in. At the end of the finish line, the Father is there waiting with open arms to call us home. There's the great cloud of witnesses that are looking on and cheering and saying, Go, Sovereign Grace. Keep running. Now's your time. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians talks about the race he's in. He says, Brothers, I do not consider I have made it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? He's saying, listen, I'm like you. I'm just trying to run the same race. So let's join together in this race. Let's carry forward the one another's of Scripture. We're in the greatest running battle race of our lives. So I'm forgetting what lies behind. That just doesn't even matter anymore. We've just got to press on. We've got to press on and keep running after what we're all about. Running towards Jesus. Running aware that the cloud of witnesses is looking on. And look at the words he uses. Race. Run, endure, strain forward, press on. This isn't a day out at the park. This is intentional, hardcore, active, radical running for Jesus. And I thank God that as a local church, I think you do all that. I think you do it real well. I'm really proud. I'm not sure I'm meant to be proud, but I'm really proud about the church that you are. Even last week, we preach on giving. We spend time in God's Word looking at why it's important. This last week, we had the best week of giving we've ever had in the last five years. It's not because of my preaching. It's because of your interaction with God's Word. You believe it. And you want to run the race well for the glory of the Lord. And I love that about you. You are serious about pursuing the Lord. You're serious about the race. And you're serious about running well. Well, here's what Satan then wants to do, primarily. He wants to distract you. He wants you to forget about the race. He doesn't want you to think you're in a race at all. So he employs the scheme of distraction. So right now, you're reminded that you're in the race. Right now, you're reminded that, yes, there is a great cloud of witnesses. Yes, I am running for the Father. Yes, my whole life. I haven't been forgiven and redeemed. I, I want to run in a manner worthy of the calling that I've received. I want to live for Jesus. Right now, we're good on that. But there is one in the crowd, namely Satan and his forces, that as we run, have a few concerns that they want to share with you. Not usually on a Sunday. Usually in the week, when you're by yourself. He wants to have a chat with you about a few things. One of his primary concerns often usually is to do with your past. How dare you be running in light of who you really are? I know who you are. I know the sins you're committing. I know the things you've done in your life. How can you even sit there with those people at Sovereign Grace and pretend to be running in a way that you know you're not? What about those sins that you've committed in your past? Let's talk about them. Hey, listen, don't forget these things. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know your secrets. They're not secret to me. How dare you be running then? How hypocritical is that? Satan loves to remind us about our past and talk to us about who we really are outside of Christ. He also loves to talk to us, I think, about our present, the things that are presently happening in our lives. And so to the guy, as, you, as you're running, I just want to love for Jesus. I want to work for Jesus. Satan wants to call you aside and say, hey, hey, let's just chat a minute. This is great. This is wonderful. But let's talk about your career a moment. Do you really want to build a security for your family? Do you really love your wife? Do you want to rent for the rest of your life? Listen, what about that job opportunity at work? It's a great opportunity, right? I mean, sure, you'll end up working loads more hours, but it's just for a season. Satan loves the word season. It's just for now. It, it won't last long. 
But that would give you the ability, if you can just succeed in that, if you can do more training and do more work, you'll succeed. You'll you'll get your home. You'll build security for your family. They'll be supremely happy at last. And it'll all be through your leadership. And you're called to lay your life down for your wife, right? Satan loves half-truths. What he doesn't like to tell you is, yeah, okay, but if you do that, What's going to happen is as you give yourself to your career for this season is the season becomes another season and the season becomes another season. And then you realize as you look back on your life, you never did have time with your family. You never were able to give yourself to the church. You never were able to run the race well because you were too busy with work. And now later in life, your kids are barely interested in the gospel. Your marriage is falling apart and you wonder how you got there. And if you were just perceptive enough, you would notice one Satan in the corner doing this. Because he distracted you. He pulled you away from the race you're on. In the present, he loves to talk to mums about the opportunities they have with their kids. I mean, are you aware how gifted your kids are? And Satan wants to remind you, hey, listen, let's think about this. You know, your kid's unique. They're very different to all the other kids. He loves that. And your unique kid, man, they're gifted. I've seen the way they are in sport or education or or in dance, whatever it be. And God's given you these children as a gift, right? He's given you them as a gift, so you need to love them and support them and encourage them. So for sure, for now, they're going to be doing soccer on a Sunday morning, but it's just a season. And you should probably, you should take time out yourself to support them to do that. Because if you really love them, you want them to know that you're, you're happy with what they're achieving. There's a great group of friends in that sports club, so it's going to be a great opportunity. And just remember, they gave their life to the Lord when they were five. They put their faith in Him as their Lord and Savior, so that surely they're in. There's going to be a season that they're missing, church. But that season becomes another season. That season becomes another season. That season becomes another season. And then as you go through the teen years, you're trying to reach out to this child and say, hey, listen, love, it's not all about sport. Sport isn't that important. It's all about Jesus. But all they remember is your support for them in the midst of their hobby, or midst of what they're doing. And now this very sport has become their identity and their joy and their satisfaction. This for them is what they're about. And by now it's too late for you to say to them, listen, stop doing that. I just need you at church. They don't care. And Satan, once again, are the couple that are getting older. They've served Jesus all their lives. They're aware that they've invested in the kingdom in great ways, and Satan knows that as well. So Satan wants to chat to that couple as they're running along. Hey, just come here a minute. You look tired. I've seen you serving Jesus for years. It's about me time now, right? And have you seen that house by the beach? Man, that looks nice. Just imagine, you could date your wife every night of your life. You can count the shells on the seashore. You can spend time holding hands for the glory of God for the rest of their lives by yourself on the beach. Surely God would love the way you do that because that's what it's all about, right? Half truth. We're called to lay our lives down for our wives as men, but the whole premise of that is lay our lives down for our wives in the context of the great race and sacrificing for the glory of the Lord, not just to be in and of ourselves. It's all about the race. But Satan wants to pull us away from the race. Make it all about you. Live out your retirement days just being you two. Oh, that would be lovely. Is there a church there? Doubt it, but you'll be together. You can be the church. You can be the bride of Christ that you're called to be. You see how Satan does this? He pulls you away. He distracts us. Does it to me as well. And all the time, he wants to pull us away from the Lord. He wants to pull us away from this word. Satan knows, Matthew 4 verse 4, he knows that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knows that. So what do you think he wants us to do? He wants to do all he can to pull you away from this. And what you find is instead of then as a church running in the battle well, fit and ready for action, we're running as spiritual anorexics. We think we're fat, but actually we're just wasting away. And Satan loves that. You're too busy to spend time with the Lord. You couldn't possibly spend time with the Lord with all your other things on. And it doesn't come into your mind, maybe I should give something else up. 
No, I've just got to do all those things. Really? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan wants to pull us away from the race with our past. He wants to pull us away from, from the race with our present. He also wants to pull us away as we consider people. Those who we're called to actually reach. Those to whom this race in part is all about. The people that we've been put on this earth to seek to win and save for the glory of the Lord. Satan wants to help us see deceptively that the crowd is happy. That they're all having a great time. They don't even want to be in the race. They got their own things going on. Satan wants us to see people in the world just as that. People. Just this week, someone in our live group sent round the, the group on WhatsApp, just a wonderful thing by Paul Tripp, where he talks about this very issue. This is what he says. He says, after September the 11th, I had a heart-wrenching conversation with a manager of a restaurant in one of the Twin Towers. He said to me, I just can't get over the grief that I never really saw these people as people. They were my waiters, chefs, busboys, hosts, and event planners, but they weren't people to me. Weeping, he said, I've now gone to funeral after funeral for my employees, and I've sat with their parents, their spouse, and their children. I've heard their stories, and now these people are all people to me, but they've gone. Then says this, as I listened, I felt so guilty because I do the same thing almost every day. I interact with many people, but I don't see them as people. She's the checkout clerk. He's the parking lot attendant. She's the dry cleaner. He's the hardware store salesman. But on many occasions, I forget these people are real people. In my eyes, they simply exist to do a task. But in God's eyes, they have a story with hurt in their past. They have a heart with a desire to be loved. They have fears and concerns and hopes and dreams. <coughs> Satan loves to distract us away from the race. He wants to distract us with our past. He wants to distract us with the present. And he wants to distract us from the very people that we're called to be seeking to win for Jesus Christ. This scheme of distraction is such a deception. Does this not have something within you that goes, I hate this. How dare he deceive me like this? But he does. And I submit to you, I think this is a scheme that Satan uses first in Sydney, and it is rife around Sydney. We're a first world country with a city filled with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. We feel obliged to take them all. And all the time, Satan goes, I love it. I'm distracting you. You're not running at all. My friends, this, all these things in God's kindness, all this scheme when it comes to Satan's is actually very simple to stand against. It's actually very simple to overcome. Satan wants to make it seem like this massive thing that we can't possibly get out of. But that's because he's deceptive in that as well. God does give us the grace to get out of all these things. And so when Satan comes and says, hey, let me come over here a minute. Let me talk to you about your past. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, here's what we do. We keep running. And we look up to him who made an end of all my sin. I'm forgiven of my sin, past, present, and future. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sin away from you. And so when Satan comes and he wants to tempt you, say, hey, let's talk about your past. Say, there's no need to talk about my past because Jesus has dealt with my past in full. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So thanks for playing, but I'm keeping running. When Satan seeks to pull us over and talk to us about our present, all the things that we think we need for security and identity and joy, and all the things we perceive our kids need for security and identity and joy, it can easily be overcome. It can easily be in a moment planned against with wisdom with, with this one simple question. Just ask yourself this. Will this decision that I'm about to make help or hinder me in the race that I'm called to? That's it. 
will this decision that I'm about to make, will it help me run? Will it help me run for Jesus all the more? Or will it hinder me? Will it hinder me from applying this word? Will it hinder me from my family applying this word? Will it stop me running? If it'll help me, I'm going to do it for the glory of the Lord. If it's going to hinder me, I'm having none of it because I know Satan can use this as an arrow against me. By processing everything through that filter, it changes everything. And when he wants to talk to us about the people and we're aware, I just don't feel affection for these people. Matthew 4, 4, the same thing he's talking to you about not doing. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As we spend time in this word, we not only fall in love with Jesus, our eyes are open increasingly to the reality of the world. Our eyes are open to how he feels about them. Our eyes are opened as we realize, if I don't feel these things, I need to approach the throne of grace. That'll give me help in my time. I need so, Lord, help me. Help me see these people as you see them. We fight fire with fire. We fight fire with a sword. All these things can be overcome and stood against with great perfection. God in his grace has given us all we need, but to overcome it and stand against it, we must first of all see it. My friends, do you see it? Do you see how Satan could be so easily trying to distract you? I want to encourage you, even over this next week, pray. Ask the Lord. Lord, is there anything in my life that is distracting me away from the race? Lord, open my eyes to be able to see it, because I want to see it. I also want to encourage you, ask somebody. You're married, ask your spouse. Whether you're married or single, start to talk about it with people who know you in your life group. Hey, you know me. Is there anything where you think Satan could be trying to dupe me into giving my life away for something that's not important, but actually it's just distracting me from the race? My friends, this is serious. This is a race. This is a battle. Don't be duped by Satan. It's not the only scheme, though. Number two, and the other two are shorter. Number two, the scheme of complacency. A scheme that can so easily pull us away from one another. You know, one of the most holistic verses in all the Bible when it comes to our need for one another is in Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. This is what the writer says. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that. We saw it a few weeks ago in a message on together as one. The whole point is we we need one another. The tone of the entirety of the New Testament is, listen, you were once aliens and strangers, but now you're together and you need each other because you're in a race. You're called to run together and it's not going to be an easy race. There is an enemy that's going to try to take you down every step of the way. You are in a race together. Don't, Don't think it's not true. You are in a race. And so let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us consider. You know, that's not just, oh, I'll come along when I can. Let us consider. We actively stop and think about and plan and prepare. Let me consider how I can stir you up to love and good deeds. What is that? It's how to consider how we can help one another keep running for the glory of the Lord. Keep not getting distracted. Keep not being pulled away. Let us consider the fact that we're in a race and how we can stir one another up to love and good works. Oh, and listen, to help you with that, let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Why? Because you're in a race, and there is an enemy that is trying to take you out. And when you neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, you're easy pickings. You know, if you ever watch David Attenborough, these shows, and you watch how how, how the crocodiles are going to wait for a certain animal, what do they go for? They go for the isolated one. It's the way it always works. It's the way Satan works as well. Get them by themselves. Get them alone, and then I'll take them out. So let us not neglect meeting together. Jaya Packer says it this way wonderfully. We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. 
It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. My friends, in the midst of all that God's calling us to and in the midst of all he's uniting us in together, one of the things Satan wants to do is give you the scheme of complacency. And I think we all get affected by it. Busyness comes and it's late Saturday night. It's the last thing you feel like doing. Church tomorrow morning. That's the last thing you feel like doing. I'm just so busy. Just think I need a rest. Just need a break from everything. I'm sure I'll come good. And then you get to the week after and you still feel a bit overwhelmed. So the Saturday night comes again and you think, oh, probably just need another break, I think. You know what Satan's doing then? He's doing this. Awesome. Because you're getting complacent. You're forgetting your need for one another. You know, I've never, ever spoken to an individual after a series of habitual not coming on a Sunday morning that says, man, that did me good. Never. Never. Usually when they come back, they say, oh, where have I been? What have I been doing? Satan loves to get us isolated. Or we go through a season where we're tired and it comes to life group night. I'm tired. And we're just walking through some things as a family. Things are going tough. I just think we need to be together. Satan loves that as well. Satan doesn't want you to go anywhere where you could be stirred towards love and good deeds. He doesn't want you to go anywhere where other people can bring the Bible to bear on your life. He doesn't want you to go anywhere where somebody might care for you in a way that will actually change your perspective in your life that evening. So he throws darts in. Oh yeah, you need a rest. Oh, this has just been a hard day. You need a break. You know, how many times have I, I felt exactly that and then I've gone to group, partly because I'm leading it, but I've gone to group and then I think, thank goodness I was here. When that guy shared that, man, that was so helpful to my soul. But how easily it would be not to come. My friend, Satan wants to isolate us and so I want to encourage you, would we not neglect meeting together because we need each other? Not only in the positives, but we need each other against the negatives as well. We are easy pickings when we are by ourselves. Satan is trying to isolate you. Don't let him. Don't be duped. We're all just like coals. I grew up with a coal fire. And so one thing that was clear about coals is when you have them all together and they grow red hot, it's all good. But if you take that coal off and you put it by itself, it glows red for a little bit, but then it goes black then before long it goes cold that coal was meant to be in the fire with the rest of them and as christians so are we if you're concerned about being spiritually dry or i'm just tired or i'm overwhelmed or maybe you've got isolated get to everything you possibly can for the glory of the lord be around christians that will help you that will aid you that will encourage you and care for you you need that don't be duped by the devil's schemes here's number three the scheme of compromise. The scheme of compromise, a scheme that can so easily culminate in the tragedy of disunity. You know, there is no doubt that in Paul's letters, he champions unity. Romans 15 verse 5 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. May he give you the spirit of unity. Stand together for the glory of the Lord with one heart and mouth. It says the same to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. He's using the wonderful imagery of a, of a Roman battalion who stand together with their armor ready as one. We move forward together, we run together, we stand firm together. And then in Hebrews, the text we're out this morning, in Hebrews 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Live it out. How? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Listen, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Paul champions unity in every letter that he writes because he knows that unity in the body of Christ brings great joy and great blessing to that community. Unity is you stand together as one. Unbelievers get to look in and go, what is that? What, what is going on with you? You guys have something that I don't have. And as we experience it as a church in unity, what we actually experience in taste and flavor is family. And Paul also knows that where disunity happens, there is not great blessing and joy, but great destruction and sorrow. It wrecks churches. Unbelievers look in and think, why is that attractive? You're just the same as the world. We bring the word of God into disrepute. And not only that, it's just a horrible thing to be in. Because you just go around thinking, this is awkward. This isn't very good. My friends... The Apostle Paul isn't the only one that knows of the priority and importance of unity in the local church. Satan knows it as well. So one of the main places he puts his armory is on you. And it's on you in the spirit of compromise. See, disunity in the local church doesn't tend to come through something that's actually huge. It does happen, but often not. Disunity in the local church, more often than not, begins through something very small. And when somebody's offended, rather than dealing with it biblically for the glory of the Lord, they compromise. And disunity then can very quickly come. You know, I heard a story a long time ago about a place called Centralia in Pennsylvania. And I think it helps illustrate the way disunity can work. See, in 1962, on Memorial Day in the United States, some of the local residents in Centralia set fire to the rubbish dump. They had a big rubbish dump, and once a year they decided every year they would set light to this thing, they'd have a bit of fun as it all goes off, and this would decrease, obviously, the size of the rubbish, it would also kill the rodents and all that type of thing. And on Memorial Day 1962, they set light to it, they had one mother of a fire, but unfortunately, they got a little too close to the Book Mountain Colvane, concealed just behind the rubbish dump. And they set fire to a coal seam that runs throughout the entirety of the town. Well, as soon as they realized that they had set light to it, they immediately sought to put it out, and they thought they'd put it out. They sprayed everything that they possibly had at this fire, and they were convinced they'd put it out. But a few days later, they realized it's still going. And at that point, they did indeed start to panic because they realized the fire had begun to go underground. They couldn't even get to it anymore. It was within. Next two decades then, everybody sought to continue to put the fire out. They had workers come in. They had engineers come in. They had firefighters come in. Everybody is seeking to put out this coal that is running underneath the town. And it continued to advance at 60 feet a year. And 19 years later, in 1981, a 12-year-old boy who was playing in his garden found that as he's playing in a garden, a sinkhole opened up below him and he fell 150 feet. As the coal vein that had been working underneath now started to erupt into people's gardens and in their houses and in their streets. Incredibly, that boy survived. But what the town was immediately aware of is that we are in a world of trouble. Trees started to get bleached white and petrified as the fire from the, the ground started to come up through them. The highway began to crack and then collapse. And plumes of carbon monoxide gas began to emanate from holes in the ground that were appearing all over the town. And eventually, sadly, that town because of the carbon monoxide reaching life-threatening levels, ended up with nearly everybody moving away. It just started with a fire, an innocuous fire. 
but it ended with nearly everybody going away and leaving. Disunity in the local church, my friends, I believe happens nigh on nearly every time in exactly the same way. So often it begins with the fires of offence. Somebody says something to you and it, and it offends you. They disappoint you. They make a decision that you weren't happy about them making. It offends you. They sin against you and you're offended. And the Bible's clear. You have two options in that moment. Only two. You can either forgive the person and in effect just choose to overlook at it for the glory of the Lord. Or you go to your brother and sister and you talk to them and say, hey, listen, I've been left offended. Can we talk? Because I want to be eager to maintain the unity. It's the only two options the Bible gives us. And yet Satan over here gives us a third option. Because here's what he says to us. You know what? You're right. How dare they talk like that to you? How dare they do that? How could they possibly do that? If they were like you, you wouldn't have done that. How dare they do that? You have every right to be hurt. You have every right to be upset. This is just so painful. And you believe it. And you know what then begins to happen? That hurt that you're feeling starts to then burn underground and enters your heart as bitterness. Bitterness by very nature in headline is an inner attitude of resentment. And in choosing not to follow the way of this word, we start to become bitter about what has taken place. And it's a slow burner at first. It's even hard to pick. People can walk past it and not quite see it. They might sense that something's not quite right, but it's hard to pick what's going on. But as with all fires, as they burn underground inevitably, at some point that fire is going to come forth. And more often than not, with the fires of bitterness, it's when somebody says something that may even be innocuous, but they say it at the wrong time in the wrong place to you, and in that moment, whoa, they're having it. Poisonous gas words come out, offense comes out, you're angry, you're harsh, you're irritated. How dare they say that? And that didn't start there, it started all the way back here. And left still unchecked in the context of the local church, sadly, if it's still not dealt with, more often than not, just like it did in Centralia, it usually ends up with people moving away. And all the time, Satan looks on doing this. My friends, you will find in the context of the race in the local church that you will be offended. You will be disappointed. There'll be things happen in the local church, given the nature of indwelling sin, given the nature of our humanity, that will disappoint you at times and offend you at times. Odds are on, myself and the pastoral team at some point will offend you. Given the fact that there are so many words come out my mouth, and given the fact that it only takes three to offend somebody, it's going to happen. And dealing with the fact that I actually preach from this word, which it says in Hebrews is sharper than the double-edged sword, there's going to be times when I'm swinging it about and it cuts you. And instead of realizing that God's cut you, you think I've cut you and so you're mad at me. The odds are on, there's going to be times when you're going to be offended. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to feel overlooked. You're going to feel let down. It will happen. But I urge you, do not then let Satan convince you that compromise is the best option. Compromise is never the best option. Choose life. Choose this word. And when you're offended or disappointed, you only have two options. You either, number one, you choose to overlook Proverbs 19, verse 11. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. That's our first point of call. You've offended me. Can I overlook it? Can I overlook it for the glory of the Lord? Do I really think this is who you are? Do all you can to overlook it and be eager to maintain the unity. But if you can't, if you're still offended and you know it, and you don't want those fires to go beneath and turn bitter, then apply Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. For if he listens to you, you have gained 
your brother. My friends, if you can't overlook it, then don't announce it to lots of people. Likewise, don't let it burn within. Go to them. Sometimes we do well to take a life group leader or a pastor with us, depending on how sensitive it is, and sometimes it's difficult. But what we don't want to be doing is going large or small and inward. We need to deal with it and be eager to maintain the unity. Don't be duped by Satan. Don't be duped to compromise. Compromise will never bring life. It will bring death and destruction. Our friends, we need to be aware of the devil's schemes. There's no doubt in my mind that Satan hates this church. He hates you. He hates you. He wants to bring you down. Fact. So don't be duped by his schemes. Stand firm against his schemes. Next week, then, I'm going to carry on with Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at the armor of God. What has he given us as a local church so that we may stand firm against his schemes? But here's what I want to leave you with today. Here's what he's given us most of all. He's given us himself. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our answer, amen. He holds us. So even now as we close, if the band want to come up, let's run to him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how incredible it is to know that we're on a race, that together we stand as a local church and we run, and we run for your glory. We run for the crown to come. We run for the moment when we get to kneel before you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And by your grace, receive the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we want to run well. And Lord, you're helping us to see then how the enemy comes after us. How he shoots arrows in from the side again and again and again. Arrows of distraction, arrows of complacency, arrows of compromise. Lord, did you help us to be wise and stand firm against each and every arrow for the glory of the Lord? Lord, protect us as a church. As it says in your word, would you be a shield around us? Would you be a refuge around us? Would you be the rock on which we stand? And Lord, would we quickly then run to you every step of the race and rely on you for all that we need? Because you are all that we need. So help us, Lord. Amen.